By listening to the Conscious Fertility Podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician or healthcare provider for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Welcome to Conscious Fertility, the show that listens to all of your fertility questions so that you can move from fear and suffering to peace of mind and joy. My name is Lauren Brown. I'm a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and a clinical hypnotherapist. I'm on a mission to explore all the paths to peak fertility and joyful living. It's time to learn how to be and receive so that you can create life on purpose. I want to introduce you, many of you probably know her, Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor. She, her latest book is Whole Brain Living. And uh, I want to share a little bit about her because she's the New York Times bestselling author of My Stroke of Insights that blends neuroanatomy with psychology to show how we can short circuit emotional reactivity and find our way to peace. Uh, just hearing that peace word makes me feel a little bit better and that there's somebody out there who has a neuroscience background that can tell us and share how we can do that. Um, a little bit about Dr. Jill Taylor. She's a Harvard-trained and published neuroanatomist. In 1996, which I hope she'll share more about, she unfortunately experienced a severe hemorrhagic stroke in the left hemisphere of her brain, causing her to lose the ability to walk, talk, read, write, and recall much of her life. And then in her memoir, her first book, My Stroke of Insight, she documented her experience with the stroke. In her eight-year recovery, this book, My Stroke of Insight, spent 63 weeks on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, and it's still routinely the number one book about stroke on um, Amazon as well. Now, you're going to find out that um, Dr. Taylor is a dynamic teacher and a public speaker, and she loves to educate um, all age groups and academic levels, as well as corporations about the beauty of our human brain and its ability to recover from trauma. I know so many of us not only experiencing physical trauma, but in this time, emotional trauma. In 2008, she gave the first TED Talk that ever went viral on the internet. So she may be credited for breaking the internet. I don't know on that day. <laughs> she now has well over 28 million views. Also in 2008, you should know that she was chosen as one of Times Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world and was the premier guest on Oprah Winfrey's Soul Series webcast as well. Her latest book um, that I just got to read and found very inspirational is Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters that Drive Our Life. And this is also available now. Dr. Taylor, welcome to the Conscious Fertility Podcast, and thanks for making the time to connect and talk today. Thank you, Lauren. I'm looking forward to it. Now, your background is in, is in neuroscience. You're a neuroanatomist. From a material perspective, then, is there more? We're going to get right into it. Is there more to peace of mind and physical health than what meets the eye from that materialistic perspective, basically what we derive from our physical senses now that you've had this experience and maybe share what you experienced because what you experienced sounds a little out there for many and let us know if, if there's more than meets the eye now that you've come from what you call the left brain side as a neuroscientist, seems like you've opened up to your right brain side and put them together. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience and is there more to life than... Um, just what we learn from our five senses. So when you think about yourself as a biological creature, I mean, that's all you are. You're a biological creature. You are a collection of cells. 
And every ability you have is because you have brain cells that perform that function. So I can create language and make sound, and that's a group of cells inside of my brain. Wipe them out, I can't do that anymore. And then we have the ability to have a group of cells that allows us to comprehend and understand when someone speaks. Wipe those cells out, and we have no comprehension. We have the ability to move our body in space. Wipe those cells out, and we have paralysis. So every ability we have, we have because we have brain cells that perform that function. So when I experienced my stroke and it wiped out my left hemisphere, it wiped out my language. I could not speak or understand when other people spoke. It wiped out a group of cells that defined me as an individual. So my ego went completely offline, was floating in a pool of blood. There's a group of cells in the left hemisphere that creates a holographic image of where I begin and where I end. I wiped that out. So on the morning of the stroke, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life because all of those functions were in the left hemisphere. But in the absence of those abilities, those cells reaching across to the right hemisphere through what we call the corpus callosum, which is made up of some 300 million axonal fibers of, so that two hemispheres know what the other one's doing. When I wiped out the left hemisphere, it released its inhibition off of the things going on in the right hemisphere. And I experienced the present moment. And in the present moment, it's peaceful and it's beautiful and exciting. And I didn't have the boundaries of where I began and ended. So I perceived myself to be the biological creature that I am. I am an energy ball wrapped around some 50 trillion beautiful molecular geniuses, these cells that have differentiated so that I have all of these abilities. So what I learned on that morning was every ability we have is because we have brain cells that perform that function and different parts of the brain really do are really are responsible for very specific abilities. So would you describe this as like an awakening on a spiritual side? And the reason I want to ask you this question is there's many cultures and traditions that talk about this present moment. They talk about nirvana. There's a new age movement, um, manifestation movement, law of attraction movement that talk about get into the present moment, the quantum field, um, go from space time to time space and you access this conscious universe. But a lot of these people, you know, just everyday Joes as in they don't have the neuroscience background that you have. So you bring a little credibility to this, a little, maybe a lot. Did you experience nirvana? Is, is there more to this world? You said you couldn't tell where you began and ended anymore. You were connected to everything. So um, for those people that are wondering if there's more to life than meets the eye and if there's more, if there's something else we can do, what was your experience? What do you believe now? You know, I'm going to go right back to I believe every ability we have is completely dependent on the brain cells that perform that function. So we have the perception that uh, I begin and I end here where my skin meets the air because there's a group of cells in my left hemisphere that defines a holographic image of where I begin and where I end. Wipe those out and any of us is no longer going to have that perception of individuality from that which is outside of us. So I think that in looking at how do I feel, what do I think, my left brain looks at me as an individual 
And to the consciousness of my left hemisphere, the whole world revolves around me. I'm important. Me and my relationship with the external world, that's the skill set of that left hemisphere. But in the absence of that left hemisphere, I still have skill set, but it's based on a bigger spatial experience where I, the individual, me, my ego, I died that day and I had to rebuild the circuitry and I had to create a new level of consciousness by healing those cells and create a new individuality and a new identity. So I think that if we are perceiving ourselves as only that which our senses perceive, then which pieces of our senses, for example, uh, my left hemisphere, let's say I look at you or you look at me and, and I'm talking and I'm talking with my hands and, and I'm using facial expression. Well, that's language, but that's language cues that are being picked up by the language cells in the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere language cells are picking up the words and the details of the words and putting meaning on those words so I can comprehend that language and communicate with you. So it takes both hemispheres perceiving experience from the external world to have the big picture as well as the detail information processing. And we have two different hemispheres that do it very differently. And the better we get to know how the different cells organize information and actually manifest me, then when I have choices to make, I actually know and understand what my choices are based on what I know about my brain. And when I experience conflict, I can understand, okay, well, this part of my brain is saying, well, I have to do this. I want this. This is what I need in order to be happy. And the other consciousness, another part of my brain might be saying, well, I can be happy without any of that. Why do we need that? That's just stress. At the end of your, um, your TED Talk, it reminded me of a quote by um, Viktor Frankl. He has a quote saying, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And at the end of your TED Talk, you said, change yourself and change the world. We share in this desire, and the intention behind the Conscious Fertility Podcast is the wake-up call is struggling to get pregnant, grow your family. Um, you're drawn to lots of things, like in our practice, acupuncture, laser, diet, lifestyle, working on that physical body. And then now conscious work, so healing your mind and your heart, because you go from conscious fertility to then conscious conception to conscious parenting. If these children are raised by developmentalists versus behaviorists, as um, one of the attachment therapists, the first time I heard this was from Gordon Neufeld, and I've seen this inside your book, everybody wants to be seen, heard, and understood, or seen, heard, and loved. And if the attachment needs are met in this generation, he says in one generation, the planet will heal. Why? Because these children will grow up getting their attachment needs met, so they won't need to cut, they don't become drug addicts, there's no suicide, and when they grow up, and you and I, we've expired, <laughs> the world will be great because they've had their attachment needs met, meaning they're conscious. And so this is why I wanted to talk to you, because to me, you're uh, one of the conscious experts out there from your background and your personal experience. So this leads me into a question then. You believe in conventional medicine, obviously. It, it saved your life, it sounds like. It was part of the process when you had your stroke. And I also um, remember reading your book, that the way you paraphrase it is you believe also in the body's innate ability to heal. And I want to know how you see with conscious work or what you call the brain huddle to me is a form of conscious work. How can this impact our, our health on a physical level? 
So I'm going to go back to the concept that every ability we have, we have because we have brain cells that perform that function. And so uh, I have been uh, on several podcasts and conversations about fertility. And I always have to bring up what circuitry might I be running that is interfering with my ability to conceive. And if you look at the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere is about me in my need and my perfection in relationship to what I need the external world to look like and my relationship with that. Well, that's a preconceived notion. That's not reality. Reality is what's going on in the right hemisphere, which is right here, right now. And in the right here, right now experience, I can experience peaceful euphoria. I can exercise. I can get the adrenaline high from uh, being connected to other people. I can be uh, just out of judgment. So I I think that as we're looking at uh, conscious fertility and conscious conception, I think it's important to look at, well, what parts of me as a biological creature am I exercising that actually promotes my ability to conceive? And as you mentioned, there are all kinds of things that my left brain can do in order for me to prepare, not just my womb, but prepare myself to be in a, a space of peaceful conception. You've got to remember that the conception, it's not just about me and it's not just about uh, my partner. It's about a couple of cells. It's about an egg and a sperm. And am I even an environment within which an egg and sperm might join together and actually want to live? And if I'm living in a constantly stressful environment, then the womb that I am providing for my, my conception to happen will pick up on that stress because I'm not just a biological creature. I'm an energetic creature. So I think it is really important to think about the brain, think about how different parts of the brain can work toward not just me being a conscious person, but me creating a conscious life within which my womb then becomes open to the possibility of fertilization and conception. And with not wanting to stress out the women listening because fertility causes stress and then we hear stress can interfere with fertility, you do have an approach to deal with um, stress and um, trauma. I'm trying to think of how, how you how you put it in your book, but you say you can kind of interrupt this with the brain huddle. So there's I want to let the women know there's tools out there that you share. There are tools. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we have been trained that the right hemisphere is the emotional brain and the left hemisphere is the left thinking brain. And that's simply not true. We have emotion in each hemisphere and we have thinking tissue in each hemisphere. And when we get to know these different groups of cells, they result in four different character profiles. And, and this isn't uh, new news, really. All I'm doing is taking uh, the world of psychology and saying, well, let's lay that down on top of the anatomy of the brain and say, okay, you know, Carl Jung talks about four major archetypes. Well, why? Why do we exhibit these four character profiles? And it's because we actually have brain cells in our brain that result in those four character profiles. So if I get to know 
where my stress circuitry is and which part of my brain, which character profile I'm exhibiting that promotes or prepares. And then I look at the other part of my brain and different character profile that relaxes and is playful and is open. Then how do I find this balance between these different parts of my brain? So first I encourage people to get to know the four characters inside of your brain. And then once you know those four characters, the tool you're talking about is called a brain huddle. Well, the huddle is between these four different parts of your brain so that they can actually create whole brain balance inside of yourself so that you are actually making conscious decisions based on what you know now about these four different parts of who you are. So um, we make different decisions when we, when we bring the different parts of who we are in communication with one another instead of, of just letting one of these characters kind of run wild and run our lives. Are you willing to share your brain huddle, how you use this whole brain process to deal with when we're hijacked by our emotions with, with stress and fear and anxiety? So I'm going to talk about these four characters inside of the brain, because what you're talking about is, is these four characters and how do they intercommunicate? So the left thinking tissue inside of our brain is, it's about me, it's about mine, it's about me in relationship to the external world. And it tends to be a perfectionist. It likes to create order. It's the part that's going to define what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. It likes to be the boss. And it's fussy about how it likes things to be. This part of us, character one, wants us to take the stapler and put it back so that we can find it later. It likes to control. So that's our alpha type personality. We all have it. It's our rational thinking brain. So think about your rational thinking brain and how dominant is that part of you. The left emotion is what I call character two. The left emotional tissue is, again, about me, me, the individual. I have a past. I have a future. So the thing about this character is that it's in the past and it's in the future, but it brings information in about the present moment and then compares it to my entire past and says, do I want more of this or do I want less of this? And if I want less of this, then I'm going to push away what's in the present moment because it's a preconceived experience of that's dangerous. I'm going to say no to it. So a lot of my fear, a lot of my anxiety, uh, if I've tried to conceive in the past and I've not been successful, then that's going to be this part of me. And this part of us can be overwhelming and it can be self-sabotaging in its own way because now I have so much fear and anxiety that I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not interacting with even myself in a healthy way. Character three is what I is the the right emotional tissue. Well, the difference between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere is the right hemisphere is just right here, right now in the present moment. And it doesn't have a me ego identity. It's just right here, right now. I have to have a past to be able to know, well, what is my name? My name is Jill Bolte Taylor. My character one knows that information and it tells me and keeps reminding me, this is my phone number. This is my, 
my address. This is the data about me, the individual. But in the right hemisphere, it's just right here, right now. It's very playful. It's very open. It's very creative. There's no right, wrong, good, bad. So I don't have to fit myself in the box of that. I can be entrepreneurial. I, and it's collective. It likes to be with others. It's a part of the we experience. So that's character three, creative, playful, open to possibility, enjoys engaging with one another. It's an adrenaline junkie. Uh, and then character four is the right thinking tissue inside of our brain. And it's just about the present experience at the big picture. I don't have to engage in anything. That's what character three does. But it's this incredible deep sense of gratitude that, oh my gosh, I'm alive. This is my calm. This is my peaceful. This is my acceptance of what is, is. This is that feeling of euphoria. When we pray, we pray to feel character four. When we meditate, we meditate to quiet the left hemisphere so that we can feel the peacefulness of character four. So we all have all four of these parts of our brain. We recognize each of these characters probably. We probably can recognize which one of these shows up most of the time as our dominant. And some of these we might find, well, uh, I'm not very playful. I find I'm not very creative. I don't spend a lot of time because my left character one thinks it's a waste of time for me to go for a walk at lunch. So then I have to look at the dynamic relationships between these four characters. And this is where the brain huddle comes in. The huddle is the huddle between these four characters that make up our brain. Brain, B, breath. Bring your mind to the present moment. Focus on your breath. R is to recognize, okay, as I was calling the brain huddle, which of those four characters called the huddle? A stands for appreciate the fact that regardless of which character I was who called the huddle, there's four of me in here. I might not know them all very well, but I can call on them and I can try to identify with them and I can get to know them. But I can certainly A, appreciate that I do have all four at an anatomical level. I stands for then inquire in this moment I could give my microphone and come out as any of those four characters. My character one can come in and fix something. My character two can come in and whine or complain about something. Character three can come in and make a joke about something. And character four can just come in and be loving and supportive and nurturing. At any moment in time, we have that possibility. And so N then stands for navigate the next moment. Out of the next moment, out of all four of my characters, which one am I going to give the microphone to, put the energy in, and then let that part of my character come out? You know, I have this approach that I call NAC, Notice, Accept, Choose Again. And when I read your brain huddle, I, it resonated because the approach I have is kind of like Googling conscious work. Every time I hear an author or a scientist I have found that this this fits over it really well. So I don't, if, if you're willing to entertain me, I want to share this idea with you because I have questions as I go through it because my left brain, I think, needs to understand how it's working. I've seen it work. I've experienced it for myself and patients. 
and I'm using terminology that you will know, and you may cringe with some of the terminology, but my brain, I'm the left brain used to be a chartered accountant before I did Chinese medicine. So there's that part of me that just needs to hold on to something, right? My, I do have a left brain. My right brain gets in there and it loves this. It wants to believe, it wants to believe, but my left brain needs to know, right? And so I always have that. As I say, um, my whole brain is my head is in the clouds. So I, I, I love going to the right and my feet stay on the ground. So here's yep. this approach that I call NAC, notice, accept, choose again. Notice, stop, don't take it personally. Everything that happens is neutral and we give it meaning. Breathe, in for four, hold for four, out for eight. To me, this is your your breath and recognize, your BR, right? So there's the notice part. Exactly. First of all, it's the pause. It's the pause. Right? Yeah. You push the pause button and you push the pause button on that left hemisphere, just routinize, 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 run it over, run it again. Know it, know it, got to detail it, blah, blah, blah. You push the pause button. You noticed, you became aware, you recognized. Keep going. Beautiful. So the next step is accepting what is, surrendering to the moment, what you call appreciate. And many years ago, I read a book by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. And it sounded amazing. I want to now, <laughs> but I didn't know how to now. And my personality, the one that doesn't want to sit and meditate, the one that needs to do, the left dom very strong left dominant side needed to do. And I came up with using these, uh, they call them energy psychology tools to use doing, get my left brain happy to put me into a state of being, into present moment. So I call the accepting what is tools that I use are how to now. I use emotional freedom technique. I may use Psyche. I may use the Byron Katie inquiry process, rapid transformational therapy, hypnosis, what breathing, surrender, basically tools to get into the present moment. They are tools. They are what I call tools and gimmicks. The key is, can you get into the present moment? Because when you can surrender to what is, this is what I think is happening. This is where I want to ask you, Dr. Taylor, on this. I think what's happening is when we're in that trigger mode, we go into high beta brain waves. We go into overwhelm. Maybe we go into, we go into the sympathetic, the amygdala's firing, the reptilian brain, and we are no longer resourced. And we're in survival mode. And we're in that little part of that pea brain. And when we notice and surrender to what is and get into the present moment, we take ourselves out of high beta into possibly alpha brain waves, from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And when we get into the present moment, I think then we become resourced, what you call, we're whole-brained. And when we're resourced, I hear some people call this the pre-manifested state. Everything's either pre-manifested or manifested, or I've heard it called the quantum field. I've heard it called going from space and time to time and space. It's where all potential exists. I don't know. I just know that it seems like this space called the present moment seems to connect us to super consciousness or something happens that is greater than us. And you're now in a space where it's kind of paradoxical because when you truly to surrender to what is, is when you can choose again, which is the C part, which what you call navigate. So everybody that I hear, they all have their methods, but what I love is it all fits into, you got to notice it. You got to interrupt the story. Like you said, you got to have the pause and then you got to surrender to what is. I, some people can just do it, right? It just, they have the circuitry and they're, they're in the moment. Me, um, I'm building it. I'm much better at it, but I have to stop and tap for five minutes or breathe or do something to get me into the now. And when I go from that anxious, high beta, sympathetic drive, I find myself, my patients, they feel calm. It's a sense of relief, a sense of peace. And they're out of the story now. And now they get to choose what they want. Is what's happening what I think is happening? Are we going from high beta to alpha? Are we going from sympathetic to parasympathetic? It sounds like 
um, is would this be what you're seeing when when it happens to people? They're going from um, character two into whole brain then and character four and three, everybody's becoming aligned. Is that what you think may be happening? Or can you explain what I, I'm observing, but not knowing the neuroscience to explain it? I think you're going from the left brain to the right brain, period. I think that's what you're doing. Because when you look at the cells in the left brain, you have collective cells that go to fewer cells, to fewer cells, to fewer cells, biologically programmed to throw away data, focus, throw away data, focus, throw away data, detail, detail, more details about those details. That's how your left brain is wired. It's a fantastic tool. We have to have that level of, of, uh, of discern and uh, differentiation in order to function in the external world. And I have to perceive myself as separate than you because otherwise we're just one big blob and we're like a bunch of amoeba floating around together and there's no distinction, right? So we have to have this magnificent left brain, but the right brain doesn't do that. The right brain does the opposite. It takes what is and expands to more, expands to more, expands to more. So it's the big picture situation. Well, to the right hemisphere, I don't have the boundaries of where I begin and end. So that means I am just an energetic blob and you're just an energetic blob and our energies are all bound up together. I have to have that left hemisphere to say, oh no, I'm a blob and you're separate. You're a different blob, but you're not to the right hemisphere, what is, is. So when you pause and you notice, that's your left brain saying, pause, stop, let's pay attention. And then you say acceptance. Well, for me to accept, that means I have no judgment. So in no judgment, part of that is no barrier. I, there's no boundary between a this and a that. When as soon as there's a this and a that, there's a comparison between the two of one another. So it is natural at a biological level for the left hemisphere to create critical judgment, not critical being mean, but to critically analyze something as a this and a that. Because then we can talk about them because they're separate and then we can compare and we can contrast and we can analyze and we do all those marvelous things that the left brain does. But as soon as you accept, what have I accepted? I have accepted I'm a life force. I'm a life force. I've got energy around this mass of what I am. I am connected to all that is. I am as big as the universe, and in that experience of being at one with all that is, there's no analysis going on. I simply am being, and as I'm simply being, it's like I'm being alive, and coming with that sense of being alive comes this incredible sense of gratitude of, oh my God, I'm alive. Forget everything else. I'm alive. And that's what happened to me on the morning of the stroke was I lost everything else, and all I had was I didn't die that day. And in not being dead that day, that's all I had was the experience of the present moment with no energy or impetus toward anything, just simply the state of being. But I'm still wired for that at a biological level. It's the difference between me being alive and me being dead. So as you think about, okay, well, all this analysis of, of waves and blah, 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 well, we can talk neurotransmitters, we can talk neural systems, we can talk about, about it from a million different directions. But to me, it really boils down to, we have two fundamentally different ways of being. I call it going to the gutter. This is an extreme, but imagine yourself, you were just in a terrible accident and you are laying in a gutter. You have 30 to 60 seconds to be alive. You are bleeding. You know you are bleeding. You are dying. You know you are dying. 
And in that experience, the left brain shuts down on all of its, oh my God, can I fix it? Because you can't fix it. You're dying. And all of the emotions push away because it's not about my past and it's not about my future. It's about, I am here. I have 30 seconds left of this life. And I feel myself draining out. And as I drain out, as that consciousness shifts from me and all that life that was to what is going to be next, what level of consciousness do I have? And my consciousness is literally as big as the universe because that's what I'm returning to. So that's how I look at it. So when you had your near-death experience because you thought you were dying, when that left brain kind of surrendered to, I can't do anything, and it went offline because of the toxic, the blood being toxic to those cells. Do you recall having a deep sense of peace when, when oh, you were in that state? Oh, nirvana. I mean, I describe it as nirvana, and I don't even know what that means. Pure euphoria, blissful, gratitude, celebration, love. It was fantastic. The absence of experience, the absence of experience is one of bliss. Now think about what that just said. The absence of experience, because even in the exercise of the experience, much less what I'm feeling about it or I'm thinking about it, the absence of experience is one of bliss. Can you tap into that now with your practice since you had that experience? Oh, absolutely. I don't have to practice. I have to practice being here in the left brain with this world. Right. Because... I made an agreement. I mean, I was complete, you know, it was blissful euphoria, but completely non-functional. Well, you know, I'm still alive. So what do I do with that? Do I exist as a vege, in a vegetative condition, uh, for a couple of decades while until my body does decide that it's going to die? Or do I actually decide I'm going to try to step beyond simply blissful euphoria and actually try to have a neuron connect with a neuron so that I can have a higher level of consciousness, which is whole brain living. It's like, okay, how do I get more of my neurons back on board so I can become a functional person again? And my only agreement with myself was that I'm willing to recover as much as it would take for me to be perceived as normal again. Because that's the only way I'm going to have a voice in the world. And then what is the voice in the world? Well, the voice in the world then is, well, this was my experience. This is what happened to me at a neuroanatomical level. This is what it felt like and how I, uh, what I did purposely in order to rebuild the connections inside of my brain, in order to rebuild those circuits that I needed in order to be able to have those abilities again. So, so I, how many times have I said every ability we have, we have because we have cells that perform that function? Well, I lost all those cells. So I had to go back and rebuild access to just not those circuits, but to bring them into the bigger picture so that I could run them all again as a whole brain and experience my life as a whole brain person. Well, here's a big picture question that everybody, not even those looking to grow their families, I think will have an interest, possibly a two-part question. What you're describing, this miraculous healing, outside of maybe what orthodox medicine can say is even possible at times, there are accounting, um, like in Dr. Joe Dispenza, he's a prolific talker about consciousness. Um, he talks about his bike accident and how he uses his mind to rebuild his back that shouldn't be rebuilt. I don't know these people personally, but I know of accounts where people basically 
died of cancer, but they were only dead for 30 seconds and came back to life, had a near-death experience, had a new personality in a sense when they came back, and then their cancer just vanished over months um, without them doing anything. I, I know two cases of that. Again, I can't validate it, so I, these could be, these are anecdotal, right? <laughs> and I hear other stories of that. It sounded like, so this is where I'm looking for clarification. In your book, it sounded like you kind of tapped into character four. And so with conscious work, um, if we're looking to support the bodies in healing, because there is conventional medicine, there's, you're not saying, you're not opposed to it, is my understanding. Um, you're saying support the body and, and get present and do these tools and remove the restrictions, the emotional restrictions, the friction, we call it chi stagnation in Chinese medicine, to allow more flow and receptivity in the body. And it sounds like it was your character four. And so that's the question I have is, if we're looking to go beyond space and time around matter treating matter, which is what we do in conventional medicine, this sounds like a new quantum type of healing. Can you talk about it? Because you've experienced it and just what your thoughts are about how much the body can heal doesn't mean we know how to tap into it. You're, you're using your energy, your effort to stay in the left brain, you said, to stay in this world. Most of us are looking for that nirvana. We're trying to get into the right brain more often, right? So, exactly. so can you explain a little bit about the healing? And I'll just preface or add, because we do have the understanding that your thoughts and your emotions impact um, your electrical hormonal system. So your nervous system changes, your hormones change, you can have stress hormones that over time can lead to inflammation and turn on um, genes that are not good for your health. And we can have positive thoughts and emotions that turn on hormones like you get more dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin that can turn on and off genes that promote longevity, healing, and maybe reproduction. So just from your experience and from the science that you know, What's the body capable of healing? Because it sounds like Joe Dispenza's story, your story, you tapped into something that goes beyond what we're seeing in mainstream medicine. So first of all, medicine is based on disease, which cells are not well. You know, uh, we're trying to bring in wellness. We're trying to bring in, um, how do we bring in well-being? Uh, and right now there's a real call for that. But the medical system made a decision back in the early 1900s to focus on illness instead of wellness. So what that means is that if I have a problem, I'm going to focus on, on the cells that are a problem. Okay, if I have a cancer, then I'm going to focus on the cancer and I'm going to give all my energy and all my focus and all my fear and all my pain and all my, oh my God, I'm going to die uh, to the cancer cells. Well, it's like the cancer cells, at least in the beginning, are like, what, 1% then maybe 2% then maybe 5% of all these cells. Well, I don't give my power to the cells that are ill. I give my power to the cells that are well. My body is biologically program to be its own healing machine. And if I truly believe that, then I'm going to focus on the consciousness of all these cells, but I'm not going to say, oh, this is my liver cell and I've got this, or this is my brain cell and I got that. It's like, mm, it's one collective whole. And because it's one collective whole, but I am not just cellular, I am energetic. If I bring in my fear and my anxiety and my sadness and my grief 
energetically, then that's going to impact the energetic of my whole body and the whole wellness or lack of wellness. And if I think, oh, this, that, or the other, and I'm just all focused on something that is just totally, you know, out there on another planet, then it's like, uh, I'm putting my, where am I putting my energy? So I think about us as biological creatures, as this magical combination of the cells and the energetic of each of those cells and how they interact with one another. I am one thing. I am a human. It doesn't matter if I'm a single-celled organism or a human organism. I am a organism. And what happens in one part of the body influences what happens in another part of the body. And then, oh my gosh, as a human, I have this magnificent brain, this magnificent mind that gets to choose, pick and choose, which energy do I want to bring into that body. And it's like, why on earth would I want to fill my body with all the fear and all the anxiety and let that fuel those cells that are not well, as opposed to come in with open light and love and say, okay, we are a team and I am mama head of the team. And it's like, let's do what we can do in order to bring energy, positive energy in order to create healing. So when you look at these wonderful stories of these people who have had, uh, you know, let's say the gal who um, uh, had a near-death experience, she was riddled with cancer. She came out of a near-death experience and she saw herself healing. And within, I don't remember how much, but not much time at all, all the tumors went away because what she brought back was her character for consciousness of I am love, I am healthy, and it cut out all the fear that that had manifested uh, this disease inside of her body and notice that these people when they come back we live differently than we lived before and this is why you I'm suggesting you don't have to have a near-death experience for this you can proactively do conscious work like your brain huddle and the tools that you offer um, through your That's teaching right. and books and what I like to do in my practice I call the conscious fertility approach this idea though that you're saying this consciousness so what is this like i think in your book you said like when we have our brain it's like we're, at, we're connected to a computer right and so i when you're stressed you're only using a little part of your computer when you're kind of whole brain you got access to everything so you're resourced but it sounds like you're also connected to the internet and you can access all the computers of the world so do you subscribe to the idea that there is consciousness and we all connect to this and when you're all you're connected to this consciousness this is where these magnificent things can happen you experience bliss and you can have if you choose biological upgrade you know i think that um that you know that's a big question because then you get into what is consciousness and is consciousness have language and blah 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 so i do believe that the universe has a natural tendency toward creating order out of disorder and out of making sense out of nonsense. And it has managed to create life. And uh, even if you're looking at a microbe, there is a fine membrane uh, between what's inside of the microbe and then the universe outside of it. And yet there are, that membrane is semi-permeable. Some things can move in and out. There are receptors on it and it, that microbe is attracted towards some things, let's say photons, light atoms, or um, rejected, pushed away by, let's say, hydrogen atoms. So as soon as you have life, there is a this and a that. There is a within and there is an outside of. 
So is there a consciousness? Well, personally, I think that if there is a drive toward making sense out of nonsense or order out of disorder, I'm going to give that a level of consciousness. Now, is does it have language? No, I have to have a left thinking brain in order to have that language. Does it have a me, an individual? No, I think you have to have the cells of the left hemisphere to have a me, the individual. Uh, does it have an experiential? Well, it does, but does it think about it? Does it have a past? Does it have a future? Or does it process experience in the present moment? And I think that the complexity and the beauty of being human is that we have connection to that consciousness. And that is what I call our character four, which is the thinking tissue of our right hemisphere. We're wired for peaceful bliss. We meditate to get there. We pray to get there. We do whatever we do to find that blissful, peaceful euphoria, but we're wired to have that experience. And then add on top of that an impetus toward, and then we have that character three, emotion experiential tissue, but it's all still all right here right now in the present moment. And then you add a left hemisphere and you add in an emotion over a past and a future. You add thinking, so you have linearity of time, and then you end up with the complexity of a human. Do we have the power to choose of those four groups of cells where we put our energy? I believe a thousand percent, absolutely we do. And to me, that is whole brain living. Oh, I love it, whole brain living. So I have one more question for you. The generation that I'm seeing for reproductive health at the time of our recording are the millennials. They're born between 1980 and 2000. So they're between age 22 to 42 at the time of our recording. And in your book, you I, I found it really fascinating. You went through all the different generations, the GIs, the millennials, generation Z, X, alpha, whatever. And you talked about how our brains were being wired. I really thought it was a lot of fun. I, I love the the line where, you know, millennials show up and they expect to get rewarded and it wasn't fair how their brains were wired because of uh, that's not how society works right now. But I'm working with millennials. Um, and so I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about how their brains are wired and how we can work with this group? Because this is the next generation that is going to be parenting, right? Uh, many are. So I just want to talk about that group today, if, if, you're, if you're open to it, just about how you discuss how their brains got wired based on how they were raised by um, the generation before. And so the way their brains are functioning, because as a parent, I'm trying to make them function the way my brain was wired, but obviously after reading your book, I'm like, oh, they have a different wiring circuitry than me. So of course they're different. So can you share a little bit? And it's not a judgmental way. You're just saying they're wired no. differently. And so I want to know how to work with my staff and this new generation, <laughs> because I'm like, I could, when I read your book, I was like, I just want to interview on that. Tell me how their brains work so I can understand them better and work with them better. <laughs> Collaborate. Lauren, <laughs> how old are you? I'm, I'm born in 68. Okay, so you're a full boomer. Yeah. Okay, I'm 63. Okay. I'm the tail end of the boomer. Okay, so we, you and I, when we were young, when we were, were in elementary school, we learned, for example, that a two symbol plus a two symbol equals a four symbol right? So we learned all of our multiplication. We learned about uh, language and words and spelling and all of this by drawing it out, right? We wrote it out and we trained our, these are left brain skill sets, and we trained our left brain using symbols in order to uh, learn fundamentally. So we used left brain skill sets 
we we trained our left brain skill sets through a process of actually educating our left brain. Okay, that's great. So then we end up with our left brain very strong skill sets and our right brain very strong skill sets that are different from one another. So what happened then across time and with technology is that we boomers, we gave our children, our millennials, a little Teddy Raspin. Remember that little uh, that little rascal that we stuck in the, the crib with them? So their very first relationship in the crib ended up being a symbiotic relationship with this a machine and across their lifespan as as young people they learned like through ipads and different kinds of computer skills that two plus two wasn't a symbol plus a symbol equals a symbol but that two giraffe plus two elephant equals four animals and that's a pictorial and a pictorial is a very different skill set and way of learning than simply abstract uh, symbolism. So we ended up training our millennials. We taught them left brain skills, which is mathematics, through the tools of their right brain because of the way that we trained them on these games and on these apps. And it's still going on now. So we actually taught left brain skills through the right brain. So we, as boomers, we are left brain dominant as a society. We are materialistic. We are about us in relationship to the external world. I am an individual. I am separate from you. Uh, it is about me and mine. We have this hierarchy. Uh, we're willing to put in 70 hours a week in order to get up the next level of that hierarchy. Well, the right brain, it it isn't like that because it has different values. And so our millennial children actually have different collaborative values. They value about, about the we, about everybody got the award. Well, we did this to them, right? But everybody got the participation award so that we all get rewarded. So we grow up as this kind of entity, different petals of the same flower, as opposed to the, the boomers who saying, I'm a flower and you're a flower and we're different and we're separate and we're going to compete with one another. The right hemisphere isn't like that. The right hemisphere says we are a team. We are a collective whole. We are a group. So I'm going to take a job and I'm going to meld in and bring my skills to the collective whole. And then I'm going to learn and grow and we're going to interact and we're going to do things together. But then I want to have a different experience because I don't like the boss because he's crabby with me. And it's like, why should I spend my time, which is precious, listening to a boss that is crabby? We're the left hemisphere. The boomers are going to go, oh my God, the boss is not happy with me. I need to change my behavior in order to fit into the box of what the boss wants so that I can get the next promotion. So we end up being extremely different in how we're wired based on our experiences. And so now one of the biggest changes is, uh, you know, conflicts is, is I tell boomer parents, oh my gosh, you know, it's not just a generational gap, it's a hemisphere gap. And we have to look at this in order to value them, in order to appeal to them, in order to actually parent them in a way that they can accept parenting. But it's going to be through love and it's on their terms, it's not on ours. Through love. Now, I rem remember reading about, listening actually, because I listened to your book, I have the audio, that 
the anxiety part of our of these children um, because we helicopter parent to them we drove them everywhere they're always there we we would never let them feel pain and do you interpret this that they never they did they never got the chance to build resilience because we never let them feel pain is it you know if you're always being helicoptered does that send a message that you're not safe because there's always somebody taking care of you um, it seems like there's a little bit more anxiety in that generation as well I think that there's a, there's anxiety for a lot of reasons. First of all, we did helicopter them. So by helicoptering them, we protected their little emotions of their character too. Well, you know, different groups of cells, the way that cells work is that the more often you run a circuit, then let's say that's pain, that's emotional pain, rejection. I felt rejection, but I have to feel rejection in order to be able to use the rest of my brain to figure out it's okay. I can feel rejection. I can learn this is rejection. I don't like the way that it feels. I don't want to set up myself for more of it, but I'm okay. I can manage rejection. I can manage grief. I can manage, I lost, right? So we didn't just helicopter them. Then we said, okay, we're going to treat you all like your one thing. We did this to ourselves. We're going to treat you like your one thing. We're going to give everybody the award just for participating. So what message do they get? They might get the message. Well, all I have to do is show up and I get an award, whether I put in any effort or not. So, so we have in some ways handicapped certain parts of their brain. And then look at the timing of the bigger picture of humanity. So the millennials were born between 1980 and 2000. Uh, that's what you said. And I'm going to say it's even a little bit more than that. But as you look at the conditions of society, um, it's not been safe financially in the financial market, and it has not been a safe world. 2001, the Twin Towers came down. And then in 2008, uh, we had a financial crisis. So, so not only are we treating them like the world is not safe, things happen in the world that show us that we are not safe. And because of a lot of that, millennials then end up staying very attached to and in the homes of the boomers. And, you know, and we love them and we love having them around. We just want them to go become independent human beings. So all of these different dynamics of how we, the boomers, treated this population, what we did to them technologically from a brain perspective, as well as what the bigger picture societal did to them as far as having lots of anxiety. And yes, millennials tend to have uh, some off the charts anxiety because for one reason, we didn't train them to manage that anxiety. And there you go, that anxiety, those thoughts and emotions lead to electrical changes in the body, hormonal changes, and genetics. And this is the invitation of doing conscious work to help rewire that circuitry so you're not experiencing that kind of fear and anxiety. We also need these right brain um, children, these millennials, because our left brain, we feel separate. And that's where we see competition versus cooperation. That's where we see these wars. And so you agree then, like from your background, what's the parenting style as a short version here? How do we develop the left and right brain then? Because we were left brain dominant. Um, our children, the millennials were right brain dominant. So is there is there a balanced approach that, um, that you're thinking based on the cells of our brain to um, help raise these conscious children? Absolutely. That's why I wrote Whole Brain Living. 
you know, the only reason I wrote Whole Brain Living was because we have to know what our choices are. So what are my choices? You know, we say, oh, that was a bad choice. Couldn't you have made a better choice? And it's like, don't you think if I had a better choice, I would have made a better choice? So we don't know what our choices are. So, but these four different characters inside of our brain, these four different modules of cells, they each have these personalities and they will all want to have their needs met. So it's like, okay, well, what are those four characters and how can I recognize when I am exhibiting each of those inside of my own self. Because ultimately, if I have four characters inside of my brain and every other person has four characters inside of their brain, no wonder relationships are so difficult because there's eight of us inside of every relationship. So how do I become conscious? I have to know what my choices are. I have to know who my players are. And once I get to know my own four characters then and how they can communicate using that brain huddle, then I'm suddenly a more conscious human being. I'm decided to make a character three experiential decision instead of a character one, how do I come in and fix it decision? Different times, but that's the power of the brain huddle is bringing them all into consciousness at one moment and passing the, the among them the microphone together. Who do I want to be? How do I want to be perceived? How do I want to behave? How do I want to feel inside of my own body in this moment, in this time? And how do I take complete responsibility for who and how I am in the world? Because we all have that ability. And if I, I do that for me, then I start noticing, oh, yeah, you know, the reason why my mom and I are always fighting. Uh, and I think that her favorite child is my brother, because when they're together, they're playful. They get together in their right emotional character threes. And she's just completely supportive of him. But boy, as soon as I bring her a problem, she turns into this analytical, yeah, let's fix it. And it's like, no, I just want to head cheerleader, mom brilliant discussion and so this brings us to the idea that you share in your books and on your website drjilltaylor.com that we have the power to choose moment by moment and how we want to be in the world is what we're choosing and this is how we short circuit the emotional reactivity and find our way to peace to quote you and this is that victor frankel quote between stimulus and response there is a space you talk about the 90 second pause in your book which is what I think the notice, accept, choose again. What I think the brain huddle does, it gives you that 90 second pause. So it, the stress response can run through the body. You interrupt it and now you get to choose differently. And so the key here is conscious work. The key here is being awake, mindfulness, aware, aware. So you don't have to plan. Like I was asking, what do we need to do? If you're just awake, aware, then you can make your choice in the moment by moment. And rather than running from your habitual programming, subconscious beliefs and limiting beliefs. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I invite everybody to check out Dr. Taylor's book. Um, it's called Whole Brain Living, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters That Drive Our Life is now available. Also, if you go to her website, drjilltaylor.com, that's drjilltaylor.com, she has podcasts on there. She has video interviews on there. She has um, workbooks um, that you can download for the brain huddle. So lots of information there. Dr. Jill Taylor, thank you so much for this discussion today.
You know, Lauren, I am so grateful. And, you know, I just want to leave your audience with, with the idea of, of using that character one to set your body up for success and listen to that little character two, but don't let the fear run that, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I got to get pregnant. I can't get pregnant, blah, blah, blah. Because that just sets up the fear and move into the present moment, which is where there is peace. And it's like a little, you know, Allow, allow the energetic. Don't forget about the energetic. Let the energetic nurture the relationship between that egg and that sperm and fertility and conception do happen. But you have to be able to, uh, you know, it helps if you support it with that level of peacefulness. So I, I wish your whole audience success. And uh, I really appreciate your conversation, Lauren. Thank you. If you're looking for support to grow your family, contact AccuBalance Wellness Center. At AccuBalance, they help you reach your peak fertility potential through their integrative approach, using low-level laser therapy, fertility acupuncture, and naturopathic medicine. Download the AccuBalance Fertility Diet and Dr. Brown's video for mastering manifestation and clearing subconscious blocks. Go to AccuBalance.ca, that's A-C-U-Balance.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Conscious Fertility, the show that helps you receive life on purpose. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show and join the community of women and men on their path to peak fertility and choosing to live consciously on purpose. I would love to continue this conversation with you, so please direct message me on Instagram at Lauren Brown Official. That's Instagram, Lauren Brown Official. Or you can visit my websites, laurenbrown.com and acubalance.ca. Until the next episode, stay curious and for a few moments, bring your awareness to your heart center and breathe.